Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, And in today's podcast, where we're talking all about the rise of Rome, focusing in on Rome's conquest of central slash southern Italy, because today we're going to be talking all about the Romans versus the Samnites, one of their great early rivals in Italy, based in the region around Campania, modern-day Campania, and also the ancient region of Samnium. Now, to talk through the Samnite Wars, I was delighted to chat to, a few months back, Dr. Catherine Lomas, an honorary fellow from the University of Durham. This was a really fun chat with Catherine. We chatted for over an hour, and so because of that, we're going to divide this episode into two. In this first episode, we're going to be talking about the background to the eruption of the First Samnite War in the mid-4th century BC, and we're going to be looking at the First Samnite War itself. And in the second episode, we're going to continue the story, looking at the Second Samnite War and the final Third Samnite War. So enjoy this first of two episodes all about the Samnite Wars, and without further ado, here's Catherine. Catherine, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast today. It's lovely to be asked. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. How could I not ask about this topic? I've been waiting a long time to do this topic, the Samnite Wars, because before the Carthaginians, Macedonians, Seleucids, and all of that lot, Catherine, it's amazing to think you have this titanic set of conflicts for, can we say, control of Italy, or at least that's how it's shaped by our ancient author? Yeah, I think that that's a good point. The whole of the second half of the fourth century and also into the third century is really shaped by a series of wars. Rome was always quite belligerent. I mean, this isn't the start of Rome's expansion, but it's the point at which it really breaks out of central Italy and and starts establishing Roman power a bit further on. So by the time you get to the end of the Pyrrhic War, which is the last of these big wars in 275, effectively what you've got is Roman control established over the whole of Italy as they understood it, which is basically anything south of the River Po. So they're not just Samnite Wars, they're drawing a lot of other people, but they really lay the foundation for Rome's later expansion into the Mediterranean. Well, you mentioned how there's more people than just said Samnites and Romans at this time. And so to set the background to this all, if we go to the mid-4th century BC, Catherine, what's the geopolitical situation in Italy at that time? 
Well, effectively, you've got Rome establishing itself as a major power in central Italy. You've still got some quite powerful Etruscan states, particularly in the northern part of Etruria. Rome effectively controls most of the area sort of up to the northern borders of Campania, so the whole of its sort of immediate hinterland. It's a period of renewal, effectively. There's it's quite a big recession in the 5th century and also a period of demographic instability during which there's a big outflow of population from the central Apennines down into Campania and other parts of southern Italy. And that is actually part of the background to this conflict because these migrants from the sort of area which is later associated with the Samnites settle in places like Campania, Lucania, Brutium, and they, they bring new culture, they bring the Oscan language, which is their indigenous language, but they also merge with the existing population. So you've basically got a sort of hybrid of Greek, indigenous and Oscan culture in places like Campania and Lucania and also Brutium. So it's a period of a lot of flux and change in the late 5th and early 4th century as these people establish themselves. And they do, I should say, they diversify into distinct ethnic groups on the way. So you get people calling themselves Campani, Lucani, Bruti, so forth. And that's the period when really the Samnites sort of start appearing as a distinct ethnic group as well. So that period of the sort of transition from the, the, the 5th century into the 4th century is, is one of quite a lot of change. But by the middle of the 4th century, what you've effectively got is this sort of cultural transformation of sort of Apennine and southern Italy. Rome was the sort of growing power in the centre of Italy, but still quite a lot of powerful Etruscan cities on, on the block. And also, of course, the Greeks who settled around the coast of Italy, of which Taras, um, Roman Tarentum, is uh, modern Taranto, is, is the most important and powerful. Economically, it's a period of sort of resurgence. There's quite a lot of evidence that settlements are growing. You get more mon monumentalisation in cities. Trade and agriculture seem to be thriving. By the middle of the fourth century, you've got a period of growth, but also quite a lot of conflict, because one of the outfalls from this big migration is that people like the Greeks and who were established in the south have to really push back, because there's a lot more competition for land and resources. So you've, you've got a, a sort of narrative of ongoing wars between Tarentum and people like the Lucanians, for instance, to defend their their northern borders. So it's well, it's one of the paradoxes, you know, if you think they talk about the ancient world as having a period of prosperity, you think, oh, it sounds quite peaceful and settled. But in fact, that and conflict tend to go together because the more goodies are out there, the more people want them and compete for them. It's such an interesting scene at that time, isn't it, Catherine? We'll go through some of these big players now before we go to the Samnite Wars proper. And let's focus on the Greek, these Greek city-states, the Western Greeks right now, because it is so interesting when you look at a map and you see these, these mainly coastal settlements and how they're almost sometimes isolated and then surrounded by this whole huge different population pushing in on them, places like Naples, and you mentioned Tarentum. And it's so interesting, it almost feels like a ticking clock for these Greek city-states in the fact that surely these external pressures are just going to be more and more as time goes on. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Greeks in the West is the diversity of them. And uh, I should declare an interest in this. This is my specialist research area, so if I go on too much, I'll need to dial it back a bit. But basically, places like Tarentum are, although we kind of think Greek historians tend to treat them as sort of quite peripheral to the Greek world, but in fact, they're really big players in the Western Mediterranean. I mean, Tarentum is a huge naval power. It's got this massive harbour, powerful navy. Likewise, Naples has the same. You know, so we've got places which is, I mean, Tarentum is probably up there with Rome and Capua as one of the three biggest cities in Italy. So these are not negligible places, but they're very diverse because they're spread over a very wide area and they tend to have very different fortunes. I mean, Tarentum is very much the leader of the Greeks in Italy, 
Naples does actually very nicely, thank you, after the Samnite Wars, which, you know, no doubt we'll come back to. But other places, and Cumai, which is the oldest Greek colony in Italy, which is just off the north end of the Bay of Naples, is overrun by the Oscan-speaking Campanians during part of this migration, and basically becomes an Oscan-speaking community. Its Greek heritage is very dialed down. Naples becomes very much more mixed. I mean, the interesting one is Peaston, because we have a lot of evidence from there. The sources describe the Lucanian takeover as being all about sort of blood and guts and warfare and people being slaughtered. Uh, but if we look at the archaeology, you get a much more nuanced picture, which actually allows you to trace how this played out in practice with populations coexisting. I mean, Greek material culture, Greek names, Greek language is still there, living alongside the Oscans. So it's obviously a mixed population rather than one replacing the other. I think what was likely to have happened is that the social elite got replaced and everyone else just stayed put. But Greek cults and Oscan cults coexist. There are two distinct cemetery areas, one which is in use contemporaneously, one Greek and one Oscan, uh, which have some fascinating tombs, which show, show us very much what the Oscan sort of cultural framework, or, or at least for the elite, was like, with lo- lots of frescoes decorating these, showing these as sort of warriors with their sort of breastplates on them their javelins and swords and spears and things and very flamboyant helmets. So you get very much a sense of a sort of warrior aristocracy moving in and replacing whatever the previous Greek aristocracy was. But at the same time, fundamentally, the city keeps going and it just becomes a sort of cultural hybrid. I mean, well, well, there you go. And we'll definitely come back to certain of these cities as we go on. You mentioned, of course, Naples and Tarentum. Both will no doubt make an appearance in our podcast discussion today. But let's turn to Rome quickly now because in the mid fourth century just before the samnite wars break out how powerful is rome what's the political geopolitical situation of rome at this time well that's as, as i said it's mainly the dominant power in central italy it's in the late fifth and beginning of the fourth century it finds a series of successful wars for the control of latium most of latium as we know it is now not in roman hands because that wasn't how it controlled territory it controlled things at arm's length, but it was very much the dominant power. It's starting to encroach over the Tiber into southern Etruria, and it's conquered Vey, for instance, the most southerly of the main Etruscan cities, and seized its territory. But at the same time, it does have ongoing problems. The 5th century is really dominated by an internal political power struggle called the, conventionally called the Struggle of the Orders, mm. which is part of the sort of teething problems of the growing pains of the early Republic. And that keeps ticking on well into the 4th century. In fact, it's not actually definitively resolved until the beginning of the 3rd. So part of the narrative is that it's punctuated by sort of outbreaks of handbags between different political groups within Rome. And also it has this massive setback right at the beginning of the 4th century when the Gauls invade, because the Roman Senate doesn't take this very seriously until the Gauls get to the River Alia, and then there's this huge battle at which the Roman army is wiped out. And the conventional narrative is that the Gauls then march on and sack Rome and then departs because they're basically a bunch of mercenaries wending their way south to gain employment in Syracuse. We don't have an awful lot of of archaeological evidence that would support the idea of a mass sack, but certainly it was a traumatic event for Rome. You know, if Gauls appear on the scene, the the Romans become scared stiff really quite quickly thereafter. But it initiated a, a period of civic renewal as the Romans sort of pulled themselves back from that. It 
involved sort of massively redefending the city. The so-called Serbian Wall, which is actually a fourth century, it's got nothing to do with Servius Tullius, which is still visible at the back of Termini Station in Rome, is a very fine piece of Hellenistic military architecture. You know, that gives a sort of insight into just how much money the Romans had available from presumably from the conquests and, and how much they were pouring it into revamping and redefending the city. And so at this time, what do we know about their relations? We've talked about their marching north, you say, across the Tiber into southern Etruria. But what about their neighbours uh, to the southeast, the Samnites? What do we know about their relations with the Samnites before war breaks out? The thing about the Samnites is that they live in a very, very different manner to Rome and in a very different area. And basically, these are the main people of Apennine, Italy. So they're living, whereas the Rome is living on the sort of low-lying area next to the Tiber, these are really other people's. And that very much shapes that, how they develop. And if you take what Livy says about them, they, he talks about them as being sort of very brave, but ultimately rough and ill-cultivated mountain people. You know, he presents them as basically a tribal society. And in fact, if you look at the archaeology, that's really underselling them. Because in many ways, they're not that different from other Italian peoples in terms of their social and political structures. The main difference is that because they live in this very upland area, they don't urbanise most of the rest of Italy is, is organised around the sort of city-state principle in the Greek manner of a sort of urban centre with the surrounding territory. But of course, in, in upland areas, you don't, upland valleys, you don't have territory which can support big concentrations of population. So what we find is that effectively they have a lot of the structures of a city-state, but without the city bit, if you see what I mean. They're quite a complex society. They're dominated by, as all Italian societies were, by the, the social elite who have a strong warrior identity, who find lots of weapons and graves and things of that sort. And they have armies based around heavy infantry. And again, that's fairly typical. But they live in villages, mostly with an associated hill fort and a religious sanctuary, rather rather than urban centres. And the sort of things that you associate with city-state life, like legal hearings, meeting together to elect magistrates, making treaties, you know, and all the other stuff, really takes place at these religious centres. So instead of going to the forum to do all this, you wait for the next religious festival, trek off to the nearest sanctuary, and then you meet together and help you diplomatic negotiations, elect your ruling magistrates, known as the medics, and so forth. And at this stage, what we seem to have is a situation where there are subdivisions within the area called tuto, each of which elects a magistrate. So it's an elective, I mean, democracy would probably be overselling it, but it's it's very much like Rome or Capua or any of the other big cities where you've got an oligarchical class that, that sort of wields most of the power, but you elect your head of state. And Livy mentions subdivisions into five main Samnite peoples, of which the Pentry are probably the, the most powerful. But he also says that they're linked together into a league, which can field joint armies and have some sort of decision-making powers that seems to be based at the sanctuary at Pietra Bandante, which is not far from Campo ba- modern Campobasso, uh, which became hugely monumentalized. There was obviously a massive amount of money being put into it, particularly in the bit later on in the second century. So they're not unsophisticated people. What they are are non-urbanized, but that's not the same as tribal rule, you know, savages. It's an area with quite an intriguing hybrid of a sort of city-state type organization, but without the urbanization bit. It's so striking what you, how you described it there, because my mind instantly goes to something like the Itonian League or the Itonians further east, right? And you can see the similarities in how they're kind of portrayed as this, as different to the other Greeks in that area, because, you know, and they can retreat to their highland strongholds if an enemy army attacks Itonia and stuff like that. Do you think that was not missed 
on these ancient writers, perhaps these these parallels between the Samnites and the Aetolians and how they want to be portrayed is, is quite different to those around them. Yeah, I think it probably is. I mean, it is an intriguing parallel, but there's definitely a um, division, particularly in the, I was about to say Roman mind, but I think possibly ancient mind as well, because the idea of being urbanized, living in a settled city-state in a more conventional sense, is very much equated with civilization, whereas living up in the mountains equated, you know, with being a barbarian. You know, and it clearly is is not because it's a wealthy and sophisticated culture. It just doesn't look quite the same as, as the Greek culture. I suppose in the same as the Aetolians don't look quite like, say, Athens or Sparta. Absolutely. I love getting those potential parallels in there. It's always interesting to mention. Have you ever wondered if those pointy medieval shoes gave you bunions? Would you be friends with someone who had leprosy in the Middle Ages? And what on earth does that Bluetooth symbol on your phone have to do with the Vikings? I'm Dr Kat Jarman and on Gone Medieval we find those answers for you, talking everything from saints to sacrifices, runes to relics, sex to science. Join me, Dr Kat Jarman, and my co-host, Matt Lewis, for everything from berserkers to battles and runes to raids. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Okay, Catherine, so moving on from that then, so we've established the Samnites, a bit of background to their culture, their position at this time. What do we know about their relations with Rome before war breaks out? Well, one of the things, key things about this is that because of the migrations I mentioned earlier, the Samnites have quite a lot of ties of, I mean, literally kinship between powerful families, but also just sort of a general ethnic and linguistic affinity with, with what's been going on in Campania, because Campanians are 
you know, now often speaking mainly, you know, people who'd migrated a couple of generations earlier. The other thing is that, of course, Campania is a massively fertile area. Northern part of the region is where all the fine wines of the ancient world comes from. It's the sort of Bordeaux or Burgundy of the, of the ancient world. And the farmland's incredibly fertile. Capua is you know, a very rich, very luxurious city, lots of uh, imports and you know exports and, and artistic production. That really rivals places like Rome and Tarentum for power. So the real sticking point here is Campania because both Rome and the Samnites are starting to sort of put out tentacles into northern Campania, looking for a foothold there because obviously it's a, it's a wealthy area. And what seems to happen is that this is a sort of gradual process and to, until they get to the point of being sort of so in each other's face that a treaty is needed to kind of demarcate the spheres of influence. And in 354, this treaty is signed between the two, between the Samnites and the Romans, which establishes the River Liris, which is in northern Campania, as the, the boundary between their, their respective spheres of influence. But the real flashpoint is that they're continually pushing the boundaries. And by the 340s, Rome is developing interests well south of the Liris. So they try and demarcate the boundary, but that doesn't work. You know, they're both trying it on a bit. And, and keeping on that on the River Liris, how do we know all of this information, for instance, on the treaties and all of that? What are our main sources for all these events that are happening so far back in ancient history? Well, the main source is Livy, but of course Livy's writing in the year of the Emperor Augustus. And when we think about sources of sources, who might Livy have been relying on? Roman history doesn't really get going until after the Samnite Wars. So who Livy was using his sources is another big question. I mean, there were earlier historians like Fabius Pictum and haven't survived, but again, it's where are they getting their information from? The other problem with Livy is that really is his sort of interests and his methods, because he sees sort of character, uh, both national and, and individual, as being the, the prime mover in history. That's what shapes events. Hence his interest in establishing the character of the Samnites as being these sort of hairy and rather uncivilized types from up in the mountains. But also he likes things to fit into neat chunks. He tends to sort of have a theme that he gives five books each to. And one of those themes is, of course, Samnite Wars. And this, I think, has a slightly unfortunate effect because it, it creates a sort of spurious sort of coherence on you know, what's really quite a sort of diverse and a sort of bitty set of conflicts. So he's our main one. We have him up to about 292, if I remember rightly. But then after that, after the end of Book 10, we have 10 books where, which only exist in in very short summary. So we don't have the end of the Samnite Wars and, and the, the subsequent Pyrrhic War. We have a set of Greek accounts, Dionysius of Halicarnassus and Diodorus, who were similar sort of era of Libby, both write about this. But again, they don't exist in form. Appian, who wrote in the second century AD, and obviously is long gone after the events. The Greek biographer Plutarch has some information, and again, second century AD. And also some very late people like Xenaras, writing in the Byzantine era, who's summarising uh, you know, the missing bits of Diodorus and Dionysius. Um, so it's a it's a bit of a rag bag, but we do have enough, and we have Livy, who is, poses his own interesting set of problems. But we also have Rome's own chronicles, things like the Fasti Triumphales. So we have a, a sort of skeleton outline of, of, of events through sort of battles and triumphs as well, to, you know, which sometimes acts as a sort of skeleton to pin things onto. 
All right then. So we've got this this source background, as it were. We've been keeping everyone waiting long enough for the wars themselves. So, Catherine, the first Samnite war. How does it come about? Well, again, this is basically Campania as a flashpoint because, according to Livy's narrative, and I qualify that having now come back to that, what happened was that the Samnites started raiding Campanian territory in 343. And Capua, the main city of Campania, then turns around and appeals to Rome for help. Rome refuses, as it jolly well ought to, because it has a treaty with Samnium, the Treaty of 354. So Capua resorts to a stratagem to force its hand by committing what's known as deditio, which is a formal act of surrender. It's a religious ritual, and it puts you in, it literally sort of abases itself and puts itself in the power of Rome. And that forces Rome to protect it. Now, this is really, really odd because Capua is a really powerful city. So the Ditio is usually the act of, you know, it's the last resort of an abjectly defeated enemy. So what on earth is going on here? It's, it's very unclear indeed. And, you know, why does somewhere as powerful as Capua need Roman protection? You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of this that just does not make any sort of sense. We do know some, Rome seems to have had some sort of military success in 342, but then it's forced to suspend hostilities because there's another blip up in the, the struggle of the orders, and that seems to have spilled over into the army. We don't really know a lot of detail about what that's about, but there's a key piece of legislation called Lex Genuchia, which is about patricians being forced to cede more power to the plebeians in 342, so it may be connected with that. And then they accept the offer of a treaty from the Samnites in 341, and the Lyris Treaty of, of 354 is simply reinstated. So it's just a very short war, but it's a very odd episode indeed, because we don't, I mean, it, it, as told by Livy, it, you know, there's a lot in that that just does not make sense. And in fact, some scholars think that the First Samnite War simply didn't exist. <laughs> they think that what happened was that Livy was confusing some of the events of the Latin War, which happens around the same time, with some of the events of the later Samnite Wars, and kind of putting two and two together and getting five and a half, inventing a complete separate war. I'm not sure that I'd go along with it being completely invented, but what I think possibly happened was that, you know, there were a series of sort of very ill-defined sort of raids and conflicts, which involved Samnites, Latins, Campanians, and, and Livy was trying to put a sort of spuriously sort of coherent framework on this, that makes sense. So, so it sounds like it's quite quite small scale, which is quite interesting compared to, say, this whole mention of Capua and involvement of Capua, if, as you said a bit earlier... At that time, and I, I didn't realise this at all, alongside Rome and Tarentum, it's one of the biggest cities in Italy. So how it gets dragged in is is insane to think. What really makes absolutely no sense at all is why Livia is presenting this as having committed deditio, because that is really quite a powerful thing. And it's really quite extreme. You know, why would a city that's kind of almost up there with Rome in terms of its ability to look after itself go and do that sort of thing? I mean, it does force Rome to break its treaty with the Samnites, but that, that in a sense, might be why Livy's presenting it like this, because one of the things he's very keen on is that the Romans are always right. And, of course, if the Romans are treaty breakers, they're not right. You know, they're, they're doing something which is really quite wrong. It seems to be a sort of really rather extreme way of justifying something that Rome shouldn't have done. Mm. You know, it should have stuck with the Samnites and held its treaty, but instead it just took the main chance to help itself to another chunk of Northern Campania, which is, you know, effectively what, what it seems to be up to. Yes, putting the Roman spin on it indeed. I mean, okay, 
Before we move on to the next Sam Knight War, let's talk about this other event which you mentioned and highlighted right there, which also does seem important, its importance, which is the Latin War, which seems to then break out. What, what is this and why is it so important? In a sense, it's, it's a lot more important than the first Sam Knight War. It's a war between Rome and effectively the Latin League, which is a confederation of states in relation to which Rome actually belongs. A lot of areas in Italy have these little leagues of states, which are effectively about religious and ethnic identity. You know, the idea is that you have a key, a key central sanctuary for for the ethnos, and you have to go there every now and again and and sort of participate in things which are designed to celebrate identity. But they develop into military alliances in some cases, usually quite loose knit. But the idea is that. League members have a pay subscriptions and they, they have leaders that they elect and they could they could ask, ask other league members to wheel out their armies to support them if they if they need it. And Rome was a member of the Latin League as one of the Latin states, but it, it, it was becoming too overdominant and the other Latins got getting very fed up with it. So what happens in 340 is that more or less contemporary with the first Samnite War, the Latin states, supported by some Campanians and Etruscans, declare war on Rome. And there's a short war, it ends in 338 with Rome winning. But the real significance of this is not so much the war itself, it's the fact that the settlement at the end of the war is something which really provides a blueprint for how Rome goes on to control Italy. Because obviously Rome only has the, the administrative mechanisms of the city-state. You know, it can't go directly administering vast quantities of territory because it doesn't have that sort of capability. So what happens in 338 is that the Latin League is broken up. And again, that's typical because Rome likes breaking up other, other organisations so that it, it doesn't have any other focus of opposition. It dishes out Roman citizenship to some communities and it dishes out Latin status, which is a package of legal, it's nothing to do with ethnicity, it's a package of legal rights and privileges to, to some others. And then it ties the rest to Rome via bilateral alliances, which mean that they have to offer military assistance to Rome in return for Roman protection. And that does two key things. One is that it detaches the idea of Roman citizenship and and Latin status from ethnicity, so that they become legally transferable rights. And that's something that Rome later uses in other contexts. And it also means that Rome has a series of alliances, which means that they can, the Romans can help themselves to allied military power as and when they need to. So it gives Rome access to this huge pool of military manpower. And that's really the basis of how it controls Italy and, and one of its big strengths and how it then goes on to conquer the world. So it's really the settlement at the end of the war is really the sort of basis of the Roman Empire in the long term. Interesting to think there, isn't it? And this is a symbol of things to come. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Catherine Lomas explaining all about the background to and the first Samnite War itself, this first great conflict between Romans and Samnites. But, as hinted at, there is plenty more to come. There are two more official wars between the Romans and the Samnites in the late 4th, early 3rd centuries, and it's those conflicts which we're going to be covering in the next episode so stay tuned for that Catherine will be back to continue the story once again i do hope you enjoyed the episode now last but certainly not least for me if you'd like more ancients content in the meantime you know what you can do you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter via a link in the description below 
Every week, I write a little bit of a blurb for that newsletter explaining what's been happening in Team Ancient History Hit World. And of course, if you'd also be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from, I, the team, would greatly appreciate it. But that's enough from me, and I will see you in the next episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.